You're listening to keynote speeches from our Melbourne Podcasters live event series. These are recorded live and feature the best podcast professionals in Australia who reveal the craft and techniques of creating a successful show. I'm your host, Adam Jaffrey. I'm strategy director at Wavelength Creative. We run these events and produce the show you're listening to right now. Today's topic is a special one. We go behind the scenes of Trace Podcast, the ABC's first foray into true crime, featuring our keynote speaker, Rachel Brown, who is the creator, investigator, and presenter of the award-winning and hit podcast, Trace. So, Trace is the ABC's first true crime podcast. Let's maybe start with why, as a, as a reporter, and you've been an international correspondent and, and a journalist for your whole life, why did you start a true crime podcast? For me, this was more about the story and the investigation more so than the fact it was true crime. I I'm not, wasn't a true crime nut, more so now, but it was the story that grabbed me. A friend of mine... One of my best mates, Kerry Ritchie, and I apologise, I've, I've got a cold at the moment, so I'm doped up on Codril, so I'm, I'll try, try to get through this. Um, one of my best friends, Kerry Ritchie, did a story for 7.30 in 2014, and it was when Adam James had come forward about his allegation that he'd been um, molested by his local parish priest, Father Buongiorno, and she said, because she was going off on maternity leave, keep in touch with Ron Idles, who was the detective. The Marie James case, as you know, was his very first homicide. Keep in touch with him because a witness has just come forward. Incredible story. Saw Father Bongiorno that day covered in blood in the churchyard. Given the statement to police, nothing's ever come of it. So I'm like, you know, definitely keep in touch with Ron Idles. So I called him every couple of months and he said, no, it's really strange. Nothing's, nothing's ever come of that. So it was that little niggle that got me started interested in this case. So that more so, and I thought, well, why hasn't that come to light? Has the church been involved? Does, is it in the too hard basket for the Victorian police force? So it was more that. And it woke me up one morning at four o'clock and I just thought, I have to do this because, you know, Serial was so amazing overseas. An article by Paul Farrell in The Guardian who said, um, and I read it and I thought, damn, he's right. His article was about serial will never work in Australia because we don't have the same access to documents. We can't interview jurors. It just won't happen. And I thought, oh, shit, I'm never going to hear a serial in Australia. That's sad. And then when I woke up at four o'clock, I thought, well, this could be it, just not a current case. And the beauty of a cold case, I hoped, was that the family would want help. Police would maybe want an extra pair of hands. Um, so that's how Trace was born. So you, you, you thought that uh, cereal couldn't be made in Australia mm. and yet you still tried to do it. Yeah, I, I get a bit queasy when it gets put in. I mean, I know it is similar to cereal, but that's what they said about Phoebe's Fall and, and that's what they said about Bowerville. So I wanted it to be very different and an Australian voice and an Australian take on it. So I'm really proud that I think that we achieved that. So you're a reporter. Why, why was this a podcast then? You could mm. have chosen a number of different ways to report this case, yeah. written, video, um, a number of other things. Yeah. Why did you make a podcast? I think traditional media that I was working in, Radio Current Affairs I was working in, so AMPM, The World Today, it just doesn't allow for very complex and serialised investigations. I could have thought about it for Australian Story or Four Corners perhaps, 
But given, you know, Serial had brought podcasting out of the niche market and I thought that Australia was ready for something like this. Keep in mind too, even though it's, it sounds, you might say, oh, easy for you to say now, Bowerville hadn't happened at this point. So when Dan Box released Bowerville, I texted him and I said, oh, I really wanted to hate yours, but I loved it. Um, <laughs> he was good about it because I started, when I pitched this to the ABC, they said it wouldn't work. And I said, well, I beg to differ. So it was a long lobbying effort for me to get the ABC to take it in the first place. Um, but the reason why I harped on and on and drove my bosses crazy is because it wouldn't fit in the traditional media. So I thought if I could do a deep dive into her cold case, go back to suspects, in the end we found some more. I also thought given the nature of the story and Adam James, so as you know, it's so nice talking to people that know the story. Um, as you know, he's got cerebral palsy in Tourette. So I had to spend a very long time with him the first time I met him. Um, just so he could feel comfortable with me. I spent about four or five hours with him um, because sentences take a long time and so that wouldn't have worked on your daily news flurry. You know, you couldn't sit down for five hours with someone. He wouldn't work as a 10-second grab on the TV news. He just, he just doesn't. So we had to edit out all his stutters and ums and ahs. I kept a little bit in so you could understand Adam, you know, but he would often drop into third person. So we didn't really get to explain this very well on the podcast, but I would ask you, who do you think killed your mother? Adam would flip it into third person where he became the boy and I was the girl in the pencil skirt and Maria James was the mother of the boy. So the question would become, who does the boy think killed the mother of the boy? Um, and then we'd have to say that question word for word, who, who, does, does, the, the, boy, boy. So it would take, one question would take ages and that would never have worked in a, in a, news, in a TV news story or a radio news story. So this I thought was a really beautiful way of letting Adam give him the time and space to tell his story publicly for the first time. It gave other um, rape victims anonymity if they wanted it. Um, and it's just really beautiful. I just love, because I'm from a radio background, it's just st such a beautifully intimate medium and that, you know, I'm right there on your earbuds. You've chosen to listen to this. And then we'll talk about sound design later, but the brilliant Marty Peralta from Radio National then just made my investigation sing. So let's, let's um, actually talk about that media uh, choice, podcasting a little mm. bit more. I want to understand how you converted this story into a podcast. What was the initial vision for, you know, how many episodes? What were you planning to tell? Did you kind of map out a storyboard? Um, and, I mean, even now it's kind of open-ended still. So um, what was the initial vision of the podcast and how did you put it together? This is the biggest thing I've ever done and it's also the proudest thing, the thing that I'm most proud of. When I was trying to lobby the ABC to take it, I was doing the investigation in my spare time around my radio calf shifts. So, yeah, <laughs> funny now. Not so much at the time. So I just had so much stuff that we, when it finally went into pre-production in March or April of 2017, it came to Tim Roxborough, who was the, um, a script editor on Background Briefing, and it was really good to have him because having fresh eyes, and this is what they do in the US, best practice in the US, having someone who's, who had nothing to do with the investigation was really helpful, even though he drove me crazy. So I wanted to keep in all my dead ends. So, 
you heard about one of them, which was the real estate agent called Peter, but I stuffed up and we were chasing the wrong Peter. But there were so many dead ends and I wanted to keep them in. And he's like, no, <laughs> boring, get them out. And I'm like, I've lived through this. My listeners should have to live through this. And he's like, no, you're going to bore them senseless. So it was actually really nice to have someone who hadn't been through all that trauma and searching because um, he could spot the narrative flags as he saw them. So I started out and wanted episode one to be all about Maria, make you care about her and her children so you're emotionally invested so you would write in with leads. Episode two, suspects. Episode three, Bongiorno. Five, six, O'Keefe because I had so much on him. Seven was going to be DNA. And then eight, nine, ten, hopefully from the leads that would flow in from the community. But Tim saw, <laughs> Tim saw it and went, nah. We were going to, he said, we'll wrap the background and the suspects all in one. Bongiorno can be two, O'Keefe can be three, DNA four. And even though I just felt like, you know, it's the killing your darlings feeling, what I ended up doing with the cross-platform times, so there was a big news break in every episode that meant, which was great because episode two, when I brought you the news that Father Bongiorno had been seen covered in blood, that meant that I could go on ABC News Breakfast and talk about that and I had a story on AM about it. So we could better tailor the cross-platform times because of the big breaks in every episode. So I think that worked really well. But I wanted so you, I could show you to play you to the, my initial idea for episode one, the start of episode one, and then I'll play you what actually went to air. In June 1980, Maria James was murdered in her home at the back of her bookshop in Melbourne, Australia. Mrs James was stabbed 68 times in both the front and back and had three gashes in the skull. She was a single mother of two boys, 11 and 13 years old. Um, and I went home and the books up and, and they were gone. Just about every day mum is in my mind. It, it's, it's painful that there's no resolution. Nearly 37 years later, they're still holding out hope her killer will be found. There's no doubt someone knows what happened. It's trying to find that person. I'm Rachel Brown, and this is Trace, an investigation into the brutal death of Maria James. Maria died the year I was born, and I've been looking into her murder for the past year. With a crime like this, there is always a trace. A crumb, a shadow, something overlooked. That was my suspicion when I first came across this case. And as it turns out, I wasn't wrong. Can I, can I jump in and ask, yeah, what's yeah. wrong with that? That's great. <laughs> I think most of us in this room would be really proud of creating something like that. Yeah, and that was, that was from my pilot episode, which I was pretty proud of. Um, but taking that to Radio National, they felt a couple of things. I've, my voice was too, um, little too upbeat. And I was going for your classic chatty you know, podcast, well, not what I know from listening to all the podcasts I had listened to. I was going for that style of chatty voice, but still respectful. But in the second one, they brought my voice down. They flattened it out completely. And we had a lot of fights about this. And we can talk more about my voice later, but it went from me thinking that I was just being chatty to lower, softer, right really close to the microphone, I got it one day and Marty's like, that's it, that's your voice, that's, it's, that's it. I'm like, oh, I sound so bored. I sound really bored and flat. And he's like, you don't, you sound perfect because all the grabs are so fruity. We need you as the flat, 
straighty 180 middleman. And so my voice, I call it my Ollie voice because that's the voice that I use to read bedtime stories to Ollie, my nephew, who's three. Um, Nothing too jarring that will wake him up. So I just imagine, you know, if a kid's going to sleep, just keep it soft, interesting, contain all that colour to a much smaller space and nothing too jarring that's going to wake them up. And the guys were right. They're like, you've already, people have chosen to listen to you. They're already there. You don't need to keep them entertained. It's not like a news bulletin that I'm used to trying to grab people's attention while you're cooking dinner or if you're on the tram or going for a run. So the voice we landed on, even though I was like, you people do not know what you're talking about, um, they were right. Ask any ex-homicide cop about their biggest regret and they'll tell you about the one that got away, that case they couldn't quite crack. Mrs James was stabbed 68 times in both the front and back and had three gashes in the skull. Some people would say, draw a line in the sand and move on, but I've always had this view. The answer is always in the file. Ronnie Dools is your classic homicide cop, his face lined by years of late nights fuelled with bad takeaway food and worse coffee. Ron spent 25 years as a homicide detective. This year he retired, after close to 40 years in the force, and he's moved to Queensland where he can stay warm and finally relax a little. He hung up his boots with a near-perfect strike rate, 99% of cases solved. But there's one case that he can't quite let go. It was the first homicide case he ever worked on, and it's never been solved. Homicide and forensic squad detectives spent today painstakingly searching the murder scene. Maria James was murdered in 1980. Mrs James, a mother of two boys, aged 13 and 11... For more than three decades, Maria's sons, Mark and Adam, have lived in a kind of holding pattern. There is absolutely no doubt whoever killed Maria told somebody. This is Trace, an investigation into the murder of Maria James. I'm Rachel Brown, and I've spent years covering police and court rounds, but for the last couple of years, it's been this case that's really got its hooks into me. Because I heard something on the grapevine that made me suspect something, or someone, had been overlooked in the original investigation. A piece of evidence. A trace. Turns out I wasn't wrong. There's far more to this story than police ever knew. Three main things. My voice has levelled out. Um, The music's incredible, thanks to Marty Peralta. He composed that theme himself. And the approach. So Tim Roxborough thought it would be interesting to start with Ron, not Maria. Um, He said there's lots of true crime out there and the one thing that really grabbed him was Ron's story and how he'd done a million homicide cases. But it's this one that really was bugging the crap out of him. So that's why we went with that. Do you think that worked better? Yeah, I do too. I love that clip. Um, When I was listening back to this in preparation for tonight, I actually kind of get chills listening to that track as it builds and like right after you say trace and then the piano comes in, it kind of starts to swell and um, yeah, it's just really powerful. And and, um, that's maybe actually a really nice nice segue to talk about music and sound design because... 
I know a lot of work went into that um, and there was custom composing and all that kind of thing. But can you give us a bit of a, an idea on what that process looked like? Sure. Um, so Marty, I'll tell you, about, Marty was incredible because he wasn't just a sound designer, but he was in there trying to help when I was putting my voice down, for example. He was very helpful with the scripts and saying, oh, I don't understand that, they a bit clunky, you know. So he was very involved in the scripting as well. So we'd start, before he even got to that beautiful finessing, we'd start with me putting my voice down. And so I had a script in front of me and Jesse Cox, Tim Roxburgh and Marty were in the room. And because I come from a news background, I basically had to unlearn 16 years of news voice. So I thought I was being chatty and you know, Jesse was just like, look, flip your script over, just talk to me, who's Ron? And I'm like, oh, he's this cool detective that, what did he do when he was a kid? So I did, we just started chatting and he's like that, now keep that, flip the script over and don't read me the story, tell me the story. And that's one of the best pieces of advice that I was given. And so when I did that, and when we got to a point where I was comfortable with the Ollie voice and I was, you know, telling, not reading, Marty is like, oh my God, there it is. There's your voice. It's Rach Noir. It's my surname's Brown. Um, so that kind of that kind of stuck. But those guys were so brilliant. And so we would do the voice. Grubs would be placed around it. Rough cut done. And then Marty would work on finessing, adding in the tiny things like birds, um, the tinkle of a dog chain. Um, with the theme, I asked him about this because I'm writing a book about Trace at the moment, and I said, I want to know your thoughts. How how did you compose this theme? And he said, well, he wanted to start with the melancholy of Maria's story. So that was the piano and the cello at the start. And then he moves into this kind of dirty synth and drums, which he said was the mystery and the striving and the investigation. And then it builds to this kind of darker crescendo. Um, and then I feel like it just drops into this abyss. But at the whole time, it's still kind of got this synth prodding away almost like a heartbeat, like a pulse, that, that, that stuff's still happening. And when he explained it to me, I'm like, oh, my God, you're just... It gives me goosebumps still thinking about it because I got goosebumps anyway before he explained it to me. But um, he sent it to me and he said, how's this? And being the perfectionist that he is, he sent it to me to check like two days before the thing went to air. He said, I hope you like it because we don't have much time to write another one. Um, and I remember sitting on my couch, closing my eyes, and it was a really sunny day, but I closed my eyes and it just it took me there to all those things that I just explained to you. So, yeah, I'm glad that it's really... I mean, people have written in and tweeted that can they get a copy of it or, you know, I'm glad that he's got the recognition for it because I do think it's a beautiful piece of music. And I did a Vogue interview once and mentioned him and so people were tweeting about him in regards to this Vogue interview and so he just thought that was you know this guy that spends most of his days in edit booth dungeon I'm like Marty you're in vogue (laughs) yeah just to kind of um, finish up on on the track I think it it actually reminds me a lot of today in Melbourne like a dreary kind of overcast a little bit cold and that's what I'm imagining when I'm listening to the track and you hear the tram bell go gong and it has a very Melbourne and Australian feel to it Mm. um so yeah I really love that yeah I was very lucky to get him and this is good coming from me working with cameramen I know camos hate just being told we have to be here at 12 no explanation of the story. So 
I took the same approach with Marty and I sat down with him at the start and I said, look, this is my investigation. This is what it's going to look like. This is how it builds. So that helped him design a theme around that, that could he could build as the episodes progressed. So he, the first one was pretty clean and then he said he deliberately did it so they could get a bit darker as the episodes went along. So he was thinking that, that nuanced thinking I really appreciated. Can we talk about story then? And we've, we've done a few sessions at some of these events in the past about storytelling and how to develop narrative, but I'd like to hear your perspective on it from your experience producing Trace. How did you develop the, the, the story and the narrative and the characters? What are you thinking about? My initial scripts were very detailed, like very dense, because I'd come from listening to Serial and especially S-Town. So I'd just come off S-Town. So that was really, I mean, I described the flex in Marie's hair at one point, you know, just because I really wanted to put you there because I wanted to make listeners feel like they were walking through the investigation with me. So not knowing the type of person that Tim Roxborough was, I think he had a heart attack when he got my first attempt and he just stripped it completely bare. So he had the, he kept the bones, which was using his narrative flags. But, you know, and then that nearly killed me, it nearly broke me because all this beautiful, I thought, beautiful writing, beautiful descriptions about characters, uh, my insights and observations into the toll on them and into the investigation, that all went so what was left was basically the cat sat on the hat, you know. And I've told him this, so, it's, you know, <laughs> he knows how I feel about this. But he said, the grabs are so fruity, that will carry it, and I just want it to be plot-driven. Yes, S-Town was amazing, but we don't have that kind of, I guess, reputation and track record and trust here in Australia. And he said, for you to do something like that, you would need to absolutely nail it or people are going to hate you. And he's right. That was another thing that I write about. Stripping it bare, even though it killed me, it was right because it was so dense and the, the people sing for themselves. And I think because I'd been in it for so long for a year, I hadn't realised that in all their grabs is woven, in, in, that, in that fabric is woven in their pain, their joy, their hopes, like that shines through. So it doesn't need to come from me. And again, that was another example of show, don't tell. So I was going to ask, and you kind of started to go down that direction. Do you think Trace ended up being a better product as a result of yes. p- pulling out that detail? Without doubt, which I never thought I would say because we had so many fights about this. Um, this character went completely. His name's Brian Ritchie. He's this gorgeous old um, homicide detective. And Brian Ritchie was the guy that threw the Bible at Father Bongiorno um, when Bongiorno refused to reveal whether anyone had um, let any secrets out in the confessional. So I went and interviewed Brian there was, um, he was talking about hypnotherapy because one of the, a garbage man was hypnotised to see if he could remember details about a man leaving Marie's house at five o'clock in the morning. And so while he was talking about hypnotism, this, he had this German cuckoo clock and the clock kept going cuckoo when he was talking about hypnotism. And I'm like, that's brilliant. We need that. <laughs> and Jesse and Tim kept cutting it out. And I'm like, no, that's, this is the stuff that people are going to remember and it's quirky and they kept cutting it and then one day um, they had a rough cut for me and Jesse managed to cut out four minutes because they wanted each episode to be under half an hour a for commute time and b just in case it was ever played on a linear yeah on a linear platform and so he said I've cut four minutes I'm like I don't know how he could have possibly cut four minutes but anyway so I listened to it 
And then it sounded great and it was tight and I was like, yep, sounds good. And it was only when I went to bed that night, I was like, you bugger. He cut out Brian Ritchie completely. Um, and I hadn't noticed. So I, I blame it on sleep deprivation, but they, they were right. Like it's sometimes less is definitely more. But you're attached, right? Because you're yeah. the one doing the interviews and you're the one constructing the story. I find this when I produce shows, I give the files to an editor and uh, they send a version back and I go, wow, that's great. And then we go for another edit and they cut another five minutes out. And I thought it was really tight by that point, which is what you were saying. And I don't remember the bits that they cut. And I go, well, I wouldn't have cut them if I was in that moment because I feel attached to it. But now that it's gone and it's still great without it, then it probably didn't need to be in there. And so sometimes I find it's better not to know what was cut. than. <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. And, I, and that's why it's so helpful having fresh eyes. I would advise that any time you possibly can to get fresh eyes. Someone that's not attached like I was. And we, I called it a waltz in the end because each draft I would do, I would give them everything that I had and all my detailed descriptions. And then Tim would strip it bare. And then I'd sneak some details back in and then he'd strip some out, but leave a little bit there to humor me. So it was just like this dance that really worked in the end, I think. Can we talk about how the story evolved over time? This is, you know, we've, we've referenced Serial, we've referenced S-Town. These were finite series of, you know, eight episodes or I think um, S-Town was five or six. And, and they had a kind of start, a middle and an end. Trace is kind of still going and it's incomplete and it's an amazing show, but there's no conclusion. Like I don't feel closure yet. And I think you probably don't feel closure yet. So can you tell me about how that story has evolved and and what it feels like to be open-ended? Sure. Um, Frustrating is the answer. Um, This is a a double-edged sword because I wanted to take people, listeners with me through the investigation and they loved that at the start because they felt they were in it um, and coming with me. And along the way, I found things that I wasn't expecting. Like I only learnt the DNA bungle, I think, very soon before going to air. And so I was learning as I went. And then I had this hope that it would be an interactive podcast, which I don't think had been done in Australia before. I'm not sure, but not to my knowledge. And so I wanted to, in, in the ABC charter... There's a line about treating audiences like participants, not just consumers. And I thought, well, I want to do that. I want to make people involved, not in a gratuitous, voyeuristic sense, but if you can actually help. Like your grandma might know something, you know, which is also why I put it out on so many platforms because I thought this is the generation that might know something mightn't have a clue what a podcast is. So I'd go on John Fain and ask people to teach their grandma how to, you know, use a podcast or talk to your grandma about Oh, you used to live there, Nan. Do you remember anything? That's why I also put it on TV news stories and online just to hit and also going on things like The Project and KISS to try to tap into these broad community grapevines and that did help it evolve as it went along. And Radio National had tried to manage my expectations by saying, look, podcasts have a very long tail. I know you think you're going to get all these emails instantly, you know, with clues, but Chances are, if someone does have a clue, they mightn't hear Trace until, I don't know, July next year. And so they were trying to just be like, just, you know, cool your jets. But um, in the first, I think after the first episode, because of the marketing and how I just kind of tried to hit every platform, we did get 300 emails by the end. But hard and fast, we got like 50 or so in the first couple of episodes. Probably, no, over 100 by episode two, which was incredible. 
And so that evolution was really exciting for me. It put more pressure on the production process, um, which you might want to talk about. But poor Marty, like on episode four, the night before we were going to go to air with the DNA bungle, I'd gone to Mark James and said, look, this is what the episode is on Wednesday. I'd been hoping that the police would tell you I want to break it to you because I don't want you hearing it for the first time on the podcast. I wrote to Victoria Police and said, can you please confirm or deny the DNA bungle by 5pm Tuesday? At 5.20, they landed on Mark James's doorstep to tell him of the DNA bungle. Then Mark called me. So I called Marty and I said, we have to, like, we can't not include that, that they've gone to him and told him and, you know, admitted this um, blunder. So I was rewriting until I think 3am and then Marty had to just start unpicking all the back end of episode four. So we didn't drop it on the Wednesday morning like usual. We, we dropped it on the Wednesday night. So that can add incredible... I mean, you need someone at, like a perfectionist like Marty and someone so invested, but you need really loyal people on your team because that can put a lot of pressure. But I'm grateful that the ABC was able to do that rather than say, oh, we'll just leave it a week and we'll update it. It was so important for me that it was an accurate representation of what the system was at that time. But I brought some reviews because I wanted to read to you kind of like the pros and cons of an evolving investigation. This is far and away the best since the first season of Serial. Rachel has cleverly dug up some new leads and angles which most podcasts of a similar nature don't do as they just recap existing knowledge. A tragic story told with sensitivity and deep respect towards the James family. When I despair about the future of journalism, I'll think of all the hard work Rachel Brown has put into this podcast. Lovely. Now, it went to... Where's the story gone? Waiting... <laughs> don't hold your breath for upcoming episodes sheesh showed potential but fails to progress the case far to bring answers for Maria's family great podcast only downside is the delay between casts there's been no further episodes for months it just stopped no explanation considering the media coverage when they first came out I really thought we would hear more about finally solving this case as a podcast it's one that's been left half finished now Thanks, NASA55, or whoever that was. Um, <laughs> sorry to sound this bitchy, is, but... As, this is like reading angry tweets on... Yeah. Uh, that. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine as someone who no one wants to do more episodes than me. You know, like, no one wants this solved other than the boys and Ron Eddles more than me. So these kind of tweets are actually heartbreaking. And it's frustrating to me because in episodes four and episode five, I thought I stressed that until the coroner does this and Vic Paul does this, and I need to chase up a couple of things. I can't bring you an update. And because those two authorities have been so agonisingly slow, like glacial, that's the reason. And I thought that I'd explain that, but maybe not well enough. And it's frustrating to me because this is a family's life. It's their pain. It's not a story. It's not fiction. And I can't just write an ending. And life's messy, and this is messy. And I kind of, I understand that people want closure and people want stories, you know, wrapped up and tied with a bow if possible, I get it. But that's, that's the other edge of the sword that I was talking about, that they love being caught up, you know, in the moment and coming along with me, but they don't want to come along with me when it means a wait, you know. And so that's been a hard lesson for me to learn. There is one coming out, I can tell you, um, probably at the end of May or start of June, before the next court date, which is some new stuff that I've been working on and waiting for, because I was waiting on FOIs to come back and that takes a long time. 
Um, and then I'll give you an update into the kind of jurisdictional legal wrangling that's been going on and an update from Victoria Police. So it is coming, but that's the reason for the long delay. So I listened to the show um, only recently. So, so I, like personally, I actually only got oh, like the full story. So yeah, I haven't okay. been waiting, but it is frustrating to not have closure. Mm. But I was kind of thinking as you were speaking there, it's very interesting that as an audience member, as a listener, you go, this is frustrating. There's no closure. But when, when you kind of unpack that a little bit, the family doesn't have closure mm. and they haven't had closure for 20 plus years. Yeah. Um, and so who am I to go, oh, I have to wait four months for an episode um, yeah. when they've been waiting <laughs> 24 years or whatever. The- and, that's, and that's kind of what I wanted to write back to every tweet. Imagine how the boys feel. Imagine how the boys feel. But I'm like, don't engage. <laughs> but yeah, Hug we're getting haters. we're getting there slowly. I mean, the jurisdictional um, wrangling has been a nightmare. So the coroner I did a piece for 7.30 and for online that you might have seen, but the coroner basically wrote to Mark James, and this will be in the update, saying, um, I don't know whether I have the power to call for a new inquest because your mum's inquest was decided under the 1958 Act when it was up to the Supreme Court to decide whether to hold a new inquest. And it's ambiguous as to whether that power still applies. Is it the Supreme Court's job or my job? So that led to a whole, which I won't bore you with, but a whole kind of saga on directions hearing in the coroner's court, the James and the Jensen family appealing directly to the Supreme Court to short circuit all this. Other coroners recently have ruled on historical inquests that were under old acts, so I don't understand why this one is any different. And the sceptical part of me thinks, well, is it because of the nature of the case? Is it because of the potential interference by the Catholic Church? And the Jensen case, which is also in the same basket, Graeme Jensen was a bank robber, shot by in the armed robbery squad. And the controversy around that case is that there's an affidavit by a former surveillance officer that a detective planted a gun on Jensen to make it look like the cops had to shoot in self-defence. So that's another case that if, if reopened, that'll open a massive can of worms for Victoria Police. So the cynical part of me thinks is that why these cases are taking so long to get decided and is is that why the court doesn't want to touch it but in the court's defense in the coroner's defense Mark James's lawyer has said no I think that's you just being you know skeptical journo I think she's done the right thing she's she's realized that there's a legal loophole in the current legislation and she wants this is this was the feeling of the lawyer that the coroner wouldn't have called for arguments on jurisdiction, she could have just squashed it. So, but she she allowed Mark to make an argument on that. So, yeah. Or I mean, and I don't know how interesting that is for a podcast episode, but that's where the court's at. There was an argument to the Supreme Court that the Supreme Court should have jurisdiction. That was decided no, it doesn't on April thirteen. And now the next um, prong of that argument will be on the 14th of June, where the Supreme Court will be asked to declare that the coroner does have jurisdiction. And once that happens then the coroner, if she's the one with jurisdiction, can then look at it and decide whether to open an inquest. If, if, but maybe when. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you see my quandary with... Yeah, yeah. Is that... Would that be interesting for you guys as an update episode? Yeah? No? Some nodding heads. I like that you're crowdsourcing the podcast. Yeah, totally. uh... Because (laughs) up until now, ABC's like, no, no, we don't want to dilute the product by having these kind of updates... But then at the same time, I'm like, but people want to know what's going on. So 
Yeah, no, I, I see the dilemma. It's interesting, you know, you're a journalist, you break news um, essentially your whole career, but with this with this show at many points. So I just wanted to acknowledge that we're breaking some news here about when the next episode's coming and what it's going to be about. So like, I'm, I don't have a journalism background. This is my little moment of uh, claim to fame. <laughs> On that, what's it like breaking news when it's about people's lives and it has such a big impact. And I think you probably have a deeper level of intimacy with the victims and the family of this particular case than you have with any other story you've reported. Yeah. So what's that like? That's true. That's correct. Um, And I often get asked, how do I keep, um, stay objective and not get too close? Uh, I didn't. Like, I, I broke all the rules in this case. What are the rules? Well, just try to try to not get too emotionally involved stay objective. I think I did still manage to stay objective, but I was, you can tell that I was emotionally involved by the end. They tried to keep, and this was a smart decision by them, by the Radio National producers, they tried to keep my insights out of the podcast and maybe we can play that clip in a sec. But, you know, we're not robots. I think Trace was that much stronger because that started to seep out towards the end that I did. I do really care about these boys. Um, Maria James died a couple of months before I was born, so I can't imagine going my entire life without an answer to something that big. So that's why they really resonated with me. And they're just beautiful people. And the other seven cold cases that, that were on that coroner's list, the other people waiting on their forms, 43, to be decided, who's speaking up for them? Like, who's their voice? Like, it makes me angry that Trace has illuminated these other cases whose applications for new inquests were sitting on in the coroner's court, some for two years. Like, who's, who's speaking for them? So sometimes I think it's okay to get close to people because I think, you know, to tug on people's heartstrings and conscience and try to get someone to come forward. You know, I think the personal element of it resonated with people. They, Like I said, they tried to keep me (laughs) out of the the start and I think maybe we could play that clip where episode four I feel like it's the first time that I'm not so straighty 180 that you know someone has given me something that could have a familial DNA sample of it belonging to Father O'Keefe and so I called Jesse Cox my producer from the car and this is the clip. Someone who used to be a friend of the family got in touch with me They don't want to be identified, but here's the big news. They gave me something. Something that used to belong to the priest's twin brother. It's odd, this acquaintance tells me, that they even held on to this item. There was no reason to. But when they heard I was asking questions about Father O'Keefe, they decided maybe this was supposed to be for me. I quickly call my producer to tell them. Sorry, I'm just driving home, but guess what's in my handbag? A while ago, I asked Ronnie Dog what I should do if I ever managed to get any DNA. And I asked jokingly, because I didn't think it was legal. And he said, it is legal. If that happens, put it in a snaplock bag, label it and give it to the police. Police could check whether it's similar to the DNA found at the crime scene. And if it is similar, it would support their application to the coroner to have Thomas O'Keefe exhumed. It's massive. My life is so surreal at the moment. Oh, my God. So I'm just about to call Ron Idles now um, and ask his advice about what I should do with this. 
Hey, how are you? Good, what's going on? Oh, I think I might have something. Um, ah, very good. So I visited a friend of the O'Keefe family and they gave me personal belongings that could have familial DNA on it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I obviously was thinking I should give it to police, but what, what's the I, I think at the end that's the only thing you can do. It'll either eliminate him or it won't eliminate him. Currently they're in three snap lock bags in my handbag. Is that right? No, so what I would do is, if you can, is cut the plastic bag open, yeah. put them in a paper bag and then reseal the paper bag and put the date and the time that you reseal it up. Yeah. And keep the plastic bags in another, just another bag. Okay. Because the plastic will actually cause um, the clothing to sweat and sometimes destroy the DNA. Rookie error, DNA 101, paper bags. I called Victoria Police the next day and arranged a time to drop off the item, but they contacted me and said something had come up. So, this evidence? Well, it's still sitting in a locker. I asked DNA expert Dadna Hartman whether she thinks O'Keefe's twin brother's DNA could be useful. We'd be able to get nuclear DNA material from things like uh, blood stains or other sort of biological material like semen, for example. Things like hair, um, unless they've got the root of the hair, you usually can't recover nuclear DNA, but you could get mitochondrial DNA from a hair of that kind. This investigation's been tough. Horrific abuse, damaged lives. But for the first time in a long time, I feel a flicker of hope that the James brothers might just get their answers. Yeah, so I think that was the first time that, I mean, Ron, by these stages, was starting to think I was losing the plot. Um, I, think you, I think you were, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is all I'd been doing. I'd been, you know, and I think I say, I haven't stressed enough in the podcast, but I missed three overseas weddings. I wasn't going out on any dates. I didn't see my friends. I didn't exercise enough. Because of the enormity of this investigation and the fact that the trace team that they talk about so often was usually just me and all the transcripts that I was doing and that would take me three times, like if I interviewed someone for an hour, it would take me three hours to transcribe. So that was all, yeah, it was, I was completely consumed by it. So when, we would ha- when I'd have wins like this, that was one of the times that it really shone through. And by that stage, a girlfriend said to me, it was really nice that you know, you'd kept pretty straight for most of it and then you'd, you, we start to finally kind of learn about you in it four, which is good because by that stage I hope that you like me. You know, like at the start they said, you can't be Sarah Koenig and if you don't get that, nail it, people will hate you. So by that stage I think people were invested enough to kind of give me a little bit of liberty when I was a bit excited. Yeah, you almost became a, a sub-character of the story. Why did you do this? It's been a number of years, Mm. countless hours, every day of your life, missing weddings, birthdays, um, all the stuff you just talked about. Why? I think it's solvable. Like Ron said, there is someone out there, I'm convinced of it, that has that missing puzzle piece. It's just about finding them. I really feel for the James brothers, as I explained to you before, Um, and think with people like him... And Faye Spear, who's Graham Jensen's sister, I just, I don't like bullies and I don't like people, I don't like people having to strive for answers and all these doors being closed on them. It just, and I'm in a, in a very 
powerful position as a journalist that I can do something about that. And so a lot of us, when we get into journalism, have these very kind of lofty ambitions and it's, it rarely plays out. You get caught in the grind. And I was at a point, I think, in my career that I thought, well, I'm not, I don't feel rewarded. You know, I was doing great work, don't get me wrong, and, and Radio Current Affairs, it's, I mean, it's a very, um, they're incredible programs, but it was just the churn and I felt like I couldn't do what I really loved, which is investigative journalism because I'd have to find something that would fill three minutes of the world today, you know. But they are incredible programs, but I couldn't do investigative work, which is what I love. And so I thought, well, I'm not feeling really rewarded at the moment and I'm not helping anybody. And so when that kind of coincided with Kerry telling me what she did, and I thought, well, this is what we all dream of. Like, if I can use my skills to help a family, and if this works, like, imagine how many, if this template works, how many other families I could possibly help... So that was, that was the initial driver. Kerry had to remind me, she's a godsend. Kerry reminded me a lot when days got too hard and they did um, because for that year that I was working on the investigation in my own time, I was dealing with kind of dark material, suicidal victims around my shifts with Radio Current Affairs at the same time as I was trying to lobby the ABC to take this damn thing. So I had... Yeah, it was pretty it was pretty tough. But Kerry would just keep reminding me you're doing it for the boys and that was enough. And that's stayed my touchstone, I think. And I think you need one not in every podcast, but if you're going to do something this big, you need something just to hang off and something that'll save you because, you know, it was really traumatic and all the the cult stuff. I had a lot of nightmares after reading up about James Shanahan and the satanic cults. So (laughs) that added to, you know, I wasn't getting any sleep because I was having nightmares. But I think the touchstone is really important. And as well as getting through those dark days, it kind of, it was a theme for us. So the producers were very sympathetic of that touchstone. So we, we were never too voyeuristic in our language because of what our intent was, which was to get answers for the boys. We never released how many downloads um, Trace had had because it wasn't about going, look at us, we've had X downloads, it was about the boys and we didn't want to turn it into entertainment or sensationalise it in any way. With the spoilers, I got um, accused of spoiling it, spoiling some episodes for people because we would have the news tie-ins. But again, I could come back to that, well, sorry, but it's not about your entertainment. I'm trying to solve a murder here. Um, So I could keep coming back to the fact that it was news and it was for the James brothers and that kind of pulled me through. So you mentioned something there that I want to touch on, um, which is about solving a murder, right? Um, And again, just to reference some things we've talked about tonight, S-Town, we've talked about serial true crime podcasts. In in your opinion, why do you think reporters are better detectives than (laughs) the actual police? They would hate you saying that. And I don't think that that's true all the time. Um, I don't know, maybe just time. I mean, they could have found this, you know, um... So why, just, did, why didn't they? Oh, time, I guess. Time and resources and their workload. I'm completely sympathetic to the amount of stuff that they have on their plate. I mean, they, they mightn't have the luxury that I did, although I created that luxury, but of just time and digging and chipping away and going to visit not just this person, but that person's sister who knows this cousin. And, you know, if they've got fresh cases coming in every day, which they do, um, active cases and very real threats on the streets 
then of course they have to deal with that. So I don't think cold cases get enough attention, but I can understand why they don't. So I just had the luxury of time really to be able to, to dig in. The investigation I did in my spare time would have been over 600 hours. Yeah, wow. So yeah, it, yeah. it was um, a big commitment, but the ABC had never done anything like this before. They didn't really know what to do with me. So when I was annoying bosses and I ended up nearly quitting and saying to one of my news managers, that's it, I'm done. I've been speaking to the Wheeler Centre. Maybe they'll help me produce it. Bowerville's come out. Phoebe's Falls come out by the age. I'm like, these are, no offence to any newspaper people in here, these are newspapers. Like, we're the ABC, we've got the resources, we've got the expertise, I've got this incredible story. You know, we speak about being digitally innovative and we're not, we're being beaten by newspapers in podcasts. It's ridiculous. And that was enough for this boss to go, yeah, you're right, take two weeks, do a pilot. This was in August of 2016. And so I did a pilot on the investigating and interviewing I'd already done. Then they said, oh, it's actually quite good. I'm like, oh no, it's what I've been trying to tell you. Um, so it was more about just where, where I would fit because the ABC is very siloed and they didn't really know what to do with me. So they partnered me up with Radio National who did have experience in podcasting. And that's how I met the incredible, you know, Jesse Cox, Tim Roxborough, Sophie Townsend that helped me work on the scripts. So I'm nearly finished um, with my segment and then we're going to throw to the audience for some audience Q&A. But before we do, um, I have some quick fire questions and then one more final question after okay. that. So how long did this whole project take? It started in March 2016. So two years. Yeah, wow. How long does an episode take to put together? Uh, the four first four episodes were based on 16 months worth of investigation research. But the pre-production, like actually in studios, started in around April 2017. And we went to air in June 2017. How big is the team that produces Trace? Four. What are the ethics behind perhaps accusing different people of murder? Um, you can't defame a dead person. I don't know whether I could have done as much as I did if the two priests were still alive. I wouldn't have been able to name them, obviously, and rely a lot on... I just kept resting on documents, stuff that I can prove, stuff that I can show you that's been said by the lawyer for the church or victims who've given their statements to Melbourne Response and Royal Commissions. And then the final question I had um, was, what have you learned from this whole ordeal? What is your biggest takeaway from producing Trace? Back yourself. They told me this wouldn't work. And I had an incredible team around me at the end. Um, so there's no disrespect. It wouldn't have been the product it was without the ABC team and the production values and the people. But the start was a fight. So back yourself. If you've got an idea that you sincerely believe in, just don't take no for an answer. Rachel, thank you so much for that. That was amazing. So it sounds like with your skill set, your dedication, your research to this project, and then with the team that got involved as well, you could have probably made a success out of any case you chose. <laughs> Did you choose the right case? Yeah, like I said, I feel like this one chose me. So it wasn't about me being a podcast star or about trying to break into true crime. I just wanted to investigate this case. And so the case came first. And then I thought the podcast would be the, the best medium to investigate that case. 
what would you like to do after this is a bit of like a, a lighten up like a break <laughs> from this like like a cooking show yeah, or? yeah. G- gardening show no I just I'm really proud of what it's achieved so I want to do it again I need to be kinder to myself next time which hopefully will be possible because I can do it on work time but yeah I'm just really proud of how it resonated with people and how many people wrote in so I figure if I can replicate that I've got a couple of cases um, I'm deciding between two Melbourne cases at the moment that I would like to do for Trace 2. There's also, um, there's more to do on the Maria James case, so I'll keep doing updates on that. And then I've got some other projects around the Maria James case that might be done through the ABC as well. So there's, yeah, a lot's happening. Hi, thanks. I thought it's an amazing listen, but I had a question about a particular part of it Mm. and the ethics of that and kind of source approval. And that's the moment when you had Adam James on tape talking about how he had been molested. Mm. And it's a really moving moment, but I wondered what were the ethics? How did you decide to put that on air? Did you discuss it with him and play it to him first? Because there's all kinds of ethical issues about that. Yeah, no, no, thank you. Good question. So first of all, it was a lot of discussion with Mark and before I even met Adam what's his mental capacity and I spoke to um, one of the social workers that deals with Adam to get a sense of that I explained to Adam he's very sharp his mind's just betrayed by a stutter so there's there's nothing wrong with his mind but I explained to him how the process would work I gave him like I sat down with him for all that time and just we kept um, turning the tape on and off when it got a bit too hard for him And then I sent them, Mark and Adam, the script, the transcript when it was done before it went to air. So he knew what grabs of his I'd chosen. One of the most painful and indicative grabs from Adam, Sophie Townsend took out. So you've never heard it. No one has. And he was talking to me and he started crying and they took that out. And I was ropeable because I'm like, this is a boy, a, a man, sorry, I call them boys because I feel like in some ways I, because I've been dealing with their story when they're 13 and 11, so apologies. Th- these brothers, um, he hasn't had uh, been allowed to have a voice. Like everyone speaks for him. And then the head of Autism Awareness Australia wrote this really beautiful piece about how one of the most, one of the strengths of Trace is that it gave Adam a voice and it encouraged other people to have a voice. And so that's something I'm really proud of. But Adam, so many people speak for him, you know, and even in the stories that were done in 2013, when the allegations first came to light about Father Buongiorno, other people were speaking for him. So I just, I wanted Adam to speak for Adam. And that's why I made that decision to, I wanted you to hear his voice. I wanted you to hear it as realistically as you could. I wanted a lot more ums and ahs in. That was cut for timing reasons, but I would have kept them in. The grub that was taken out when he started to cry, Sophie said, oh, I'm really uncomfortable with that because he's in, he's distressed. And I said, his, his mum died, he's remembering his mum dying. And she said, yeah, but it makes you look like a bad person because you're, you're upsetting him. And so it was taken out for that reason, which I still, I don't, I still don't know how I feel about that because I feel like it was a genuine representation of him and how he was feeling. And he'd agreed, you know, he'd checked it. And I also got, because Mark is his power of attorney, I got Adam to write a letter and Mark to look at it saying, I agree, you know, I give my blessing to Rachel to do this, this and this. So I would have preferred that grab in there, but a lot were taken out when he sounded too distressed. 
what was the item with the DNA on and why did you never yeah, say what it was? Yeah, I can't say because I made a promise to the person that gave it to me because they feel it will possibly identify who they are and they don't want any problems with the O'Keefe family because they used to be friends. Oh, I'd love to tell you what it is, but I just, I, I made a promise and I keep my promises, so. Can we give uh, Rachel one more round of applause? Thank you.